Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word today, and we uh, thank you for the privilege of of uh, meeting together. We pray that your uh, Holy Spirit and your angels will be with us this morning to enlighten our minds that we can see you clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly discipleship, and the title of our lesson today is Mission and Commission. And if someone will look to the Sabbath lesson in lesson 12 and read the first two paragraphs for us, please. As Adventists, we understand much of our role in the Great Commission to be linked to the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. At the center of these messages is the everlasting gospel. We have nothing to give to the world unless we give them above anything and everything else the great truth of justification by faith alone. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered it is the third angel's message in verity. Thus, for Ellen White, central to our mission is the proclamation of justification by faith alone. The great news that salvation comes only through the grace of God poured out upon undeserving sinners and not through any works on our part. And then, since it's referencing the third, the three angels' messages, and it's, me- and, and it's talking about the, the message of the three angels' messages, there's the justification by faith alone, let's go ahead and read the three angels' messages, and then let's talk about this issue. So, uh, this is Revelation chapter 14, 6 through 12, and somebody who finds that for us, uh, go ahead and read that for us. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And a third angel followed him and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of these torments rise forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And this, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for that their deeds will follow them. Thoughts about this, uh, these three angels' message in light of what we read about it being the message of justification by faith. Did you see an obvious connection there? It's hard to see, I think. It's hard to see. Well, let's see if we can't break it down. It starts out with the first angel with a message, and the first angel has the message of the eternal gospel. What is the eternal gospel that the first angel is to come with? The love of God. The love of God. The truth of... Him who made heaven and earth. Worship Him who made the heaven and earth. The good news has always been... Now, is the good news the good news about justification by faith? Justification by faith would be the message of salvation, right? Is that the eternal good news, the good news that has always been, and the good news that will always be? Is, it, is that the message that has always been true, that, we are, that sinners are justified? 
think it's truth about God. Yeah, was there a time in history where there were no sinners? Yes. 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 There was a time in history before there was any sinners, before Lucifer ever sinned. So what was the good news then? Pardon? Yes. Pardon? Was there, was there good news then? Yes, and that's, you know, the word there is the eternal or everlasting, meaning eternity past and eternity future. Whatever the good news is, the good news has always been true. And are we making the good news about us? Well, that we can be saved. The good news is that Jesus came, died, paid the price, and by faith in him we can be justified and saved. That's the good news. That's usually what's presented. Or is the eternal good news, the good news that's always been and will always be the news about God himself. That God is not like what Satan said he would be. Another way to say that is, and I think you've heard some other people say this in the past, would it be good news that you get to live forever with God if God was the kind of person Satan says he is? No. That wouldn't be very good, would it? So the fact that we can have eternal life or be justified with God isn't so good if God isn't good. Isn't the central truth that God is good? So that's the eternal good news, it seems to me. And as we think about the pieces of this great controversy, what started the war in heaven? What was it that caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin in the first place? What, what were those issues? Lies about God. Lies about God. Then do we see how the eternal good news is central to our reconciliation and to our uh, redemption, that we have to come back to this eternal good news that's always been true and has been lied about? In that last sentence there of that paragraph, second paragraph that I read, uh, that salvation comes only through the grace of God, would be just as well to say it comes from the gracious God. A gracious God, absolutely right. God is gracious. Uh, And the word grace, isn't that the word like Cairo or something like that? Isn't that the word for grace? I think it is. Kairos? Yeah. We get the word chiropractic from it. It means basically the work of God. It is God's work, God's action. So if God disciplines, that's God's grace. If God blesses, that's God's grace. If God sends his son, that's God's grace. Everything God is doing is God's work for healing, for restoration, for turning the sinful world back to its original design. Yes? But it's the, it's, it's the application of that knowledge in our lives that makes it the good news. If we just, we could have the knowledge of what He has done, but until we see ourselves through the filter of knowing what He has done for us, then it's not good news. Uh, okay, um, for us personally. Personally. Yeah, okay, absolutely. There, some people, when you present the good news to them, they think it's bad news. Isn't that true? And there will be some at the end that will run and and beg for the rocks and trees to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne, while others will be saying, this is our God, we have waited for him. Now, will he have two faces, looking at some with a smile and some with a frown? Or will he look just the same? And so the difference is in the one receiving the news, as you're saying. Yeah. Lucifer knew God better than anybody else. So just knowledge doesn't ensure our salvation. But knowing that he made a choice to reject it. God's God's goodness and God's grace. So we we like I said we have to accept it personally. Yeah, uh, know it and then appreciate it, value it, prefer it, apply it, apply it, desire it. Yes, exactly. Have some affinity and attraction for it. Resonate with it. Yeah, that's good. It says in the first angel there that uh, 
fear God and give glory to Him. This is the first angel with the, with the everlasting gospel, with a message, fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Well, what does that mean? His character is being judged. His judgment. Yeah. Is that the way you've traditionally heard this? No. 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 Yes. I have the Good News Bible. And it reads this. It says, um, Honor God and praise His greatness, for the time has come for Him to judge all people. Yes, isn't that the traditional way that it's interpreted? Absolutely. The time for Him to sit in judgment upon everyone, rather than the hour that He has opened Himself up to be judged. Now let me ask you this question. As you judge God, if you judge Him to be trustworthy, or you judge Him to be untrustworthy, will that have real-life consequences on what happens to you? Yes. Will your eternal destiny be dependent upon how you judge him? Yeah. And so, so you know, there is a direct connection here. Yes. Um, historically, at what point in time did this angel's message occur? Is that, was that at the cross? Oh, I'm not sure. You mean what time was this was this revelation written? Yeah. No, no, no. At the fear God and give glory to him for the time of his judgment. Uh, at, what, at what point in history is his judgment? The traditional... Did he open himself up to... Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that, or is it 3 4? 2 4, 3 4. I think it's 3 4. Um, I think it's 2 4 is the kindness of God leads us to repentance, and 2 4, or it could be the opposite. Anyway, get those two backwards. So either 2 4, 3 4, he says that um, God may you win your case when you take it into court. That's the Phillips translation. Mm-hmm. That God has opened himself up for judgment. God has been opening himself up for the judgment of his creatures ever since Lucifer made his allegations. So as soon as Lucifer started alleging, God didn't use his power to knock Lucifer down, throw him in shackles, put him in line, and say, look, you guys better not, you, you better choose me or else you're going to get it. He didn't take freedom of judgment away. He began opening himself up, revealing himself over time. We as Adventists, however, believe that there's a special end time, quote, judgment period, and that began in 1844. Now, the reason we believe that uh, is uh, the cleansing of the sanctuary message of Daniel uh, 8.14. Unfortunately, it has been interpreted in ways that I think misrepresent the whole process. Uh, and, and the reason I think it was late stage planet Earth at post-1844 that this uh, ultimate judgment about God came was simply because God knew, if you look at the, put all the text together, uh, Paul prophesied in the New Testament that the end would not come until the man of sin arises. And the man of sin was going to do what? What was the man of sin going to do? He was going to lie about God. He was going to impersonate God. He was going to send all types of distortions. There was going to be a darkening. There was going to be a falling away that Paul talks about. And there would be a time of recovery uh, of truth slowly over time. And, and I think the prophecy merely is not God causing these things to happen at certain points of time, but God looking down the corridors of time and saying, it's not going to be for 2,300 years until enough truth has been recovered for a people on planet Earth to be able to make that intelligent, that last day generation, to make that intelligent decision about who they can really trust. And so I think that God has opened himself up all along, but the devil's lies have been such that he prevented many people from actually getting enough truth to have a clear judgment about God's true character until the post-1844 period. Part of that was the recovery of the Sabbath. Part of that was the printing press that came out, putting the Bibles in everybody's hands where the light could go and people could study the Word for themselves. So there's a lot of factors involved here. But I I think that uh, God has always been open to our judgment, and the ultimate judgment, the end-time judgment, is happening currently now. Um, why has Babylon fallen? Second angel's message: Babylon has fallen. What has what has ba- what does Babylon represent in the prophecy here? Confusion. Confusion about 
about God. Is, aren't they fallen because they have accepted the distorted versions about God and His character? Isn't that the bottom line? And when you look at um, the lies that believed, um, what lies do you think were, were most prominent that Babylon has accepted about God? Salvation by works. Uh, I think that's part of it. It's part of it in a certain way. Yeah. Under the broader umbrella of God needs to be appeased. There you go. God needs to be appeased. God needs to be appeased, and Christ, of course, came to die and pay the penalty. The lesson suggests that the good news is justification by faith, uh, that this is the essence of the three angels' messages. How is justification by faith alone in God different than anything taught in the mainline churches since Luther? I mean, don't we say that this is a special end-time message? The, the third angel's message, all the way saying here, is the, is the justification by faith in verity. Was not Luther teaching justification by faith? So how is this message different than the mainline churches? How, if they're teaching it, how are they Babylon? What kind of faith are they teaching? Are they teaching a blind faith? Uh, Without evidence? I, I, possibly. I was thinking more along, what kind of justification are they teaching? What is justification to the most of Christian world? Christ paid the penalty. Christ paid the penalty, and if you accept the penalty, you... Washed in His blood. Well, I mean, all the metaphors, but basically you have legal pardon. Your sins have been paid for. You are justified. It's a legal transaction. The vast majority of the Christian world has a, a legal justification uh, uh, for legal, legal debt to a legal God paid for by his innocent son. Is that really the message that heals and saves the world? This is out of Review and Herald, April 1, 1890. Notice the 1890. So several have written me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I've answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. The prophet declares, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. Brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message. And conviction will follow wherever it is preached in demonstration of the Spirit. How will any of our brethren know when, the light, when this light shall come to the people of God? As yet, this was 1890, as yet, we certainly have not seen the light that answers this description. God has a light for his people, and all who will accept it will see the sinfulness of remaining in the lukewarm condition. They will heed the counsels of the true witness that says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, and hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come to him and sup with him, and he with me. Notice in 1890, she was saying that the light of the third angel, the light of justification by faith and verity, had not yet been seen. Does that mean prior to 1890, no one was teaching a legal justification? No one was teaching that Christ paid the penalty, you accept the payment, it's in your behalf, you're justified? Or has that been taught since Luther? So she's saying that that message isn't the light of the justification by faith. That there's a different understanding of what justification by faith is all about. And it had not yet been preached. So what is that different understanding? Well, justification simply means that things are put right. Ah, good. And yeah, give us, give us some modern day examples of how we use that word. Anybody have a word processor on their computer? Yeah. And uh, when the margins are out of line, have you ever justified the margin? Okay, when you justify the margin, what happens? 
It line, everything that's out of line is put in line. Everything that's out of harmony is put in order. Or in harmony. Everything that's out of order is put in order. Now, the question is, when mankind sinned, when Adam sinned, what was it that was out of line, out of harmony, out of order, that needed to be set back right? Was God? No, man. Mankind. Well, do you see the traditional legal view has God out of line? You see, God is angry, he's wrathful, he's been offended, and Christ had to die and give his blood to his dad, so our heavenly dad would now be uh, forgiving and have a right attitude. His wrath will be assuaged, you know, I've heard that, assuaging the wrath of the Father. So we are setting God right with man is what we're doing. Wow. Is that kind of twisted if you think about it? Man sinned and now we've got to fix God. That's traditional justification by faith, by taught by the wide variety of, of Christians. And in fact, there are some serious uh, theologians who get very upset when you challenge this idea. I, I, I had that personal experience in just the last couple of months. <laughs> uh, I was uh, confronted by a, a serious uh, Bible scholar and pastor uh, with books and papers that were just kind of pounded at me about how uh, I was misunderstanding justification. Hmm. Well, when Adam sinned, who was it that got changed? Mankind or God? Then who needs to be set right? Mankind. So justification is somehow the process of setting man right, putting man back in the way God designed mankind to be. Does that make sense? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read another uh, paragraph for you. This is out of Signs of the Time, January 20, 1890, considering the light of the, of the message. Yes? The, the quote that you just got through citing from White, it seems like she contextualizes what she means by justification by faith by putting it in the context of uh, inviting Christ to come in and sup with him, as opposed to having, having some sort of legal precedent or a courtroom scene. So it kind of supports what you're talking about. Yes, and, and inviting into... A right relationship. Yeah, into the heart, right? Into the heart and mind. Exactly. It's a, it's a transforming, regenerative process where Christ comes into the heart and mind. Exactly right. Um, and this is out of uh, Sons of the Times, January 20, 1890. It says, Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan, with fiercest wrath, met him on the field of conflict. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence and could break away from the captivity which he had bound him. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. Notice what, what it is that sets us free. What did Jesus say in John 8.32, set you free? Truth. The truth. So what is it that's holding us in bondage? Lies. Lies, ultimately. What lies about? God. God. Yeah, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen. It doesn't have to take a whole lot of math here to put the pieces together to see the issues. We were lied to about God. We believed those lies, broke the circle of love and trust. We got filled with fear and self-centeredness. Christ came to reveal the truth about God, which will put the lies out, which will win us back to trust. And when we are back to trust, we open the heart and Christ comes in and sups with us and begins transforming and regenerating us back into Christ's likeness. I mean, it's really pretty simple. Do you notice how theologians have made it really complicated and twisted? Okay. Intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose the true views of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct on the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. Do, do Christians represent God as severe, revengeful, exacting, and arbitrary? Yes. yes. 
that we have to have Jesus there to plead to him, my blood, my blood, in order to be gracious. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father, to correctly represent him before the fallen children of the earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was a living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. Now we get this. The only way in which he could set and keep men right, what is setting men right? Justification. Justification. The only way he could justify and keeping men right? Sanctification. The only way he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became a partaker of his nature. I mean, is it pretty simple? What yeah. Can you repeat where that was? Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. Powerful article, really powerful. The whole thing is like that, really good. So, we have this one version of justification, legal debt paid to a God who demands blood payment. Does that engender trust? No, it incites fear. But we have another view that he came and dwelt among us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Revealing to us his true character, which dispels the lies, and that ultimately wins us back to trust. So, is this the good news? What we just went over here. Is this the good news, that the gospel that we are taking to the world? We think about the first angel, the everlasting gospel to go to the entire world. Is that what we've been taking? Do we understand this as the third angel's message in verity? Well, as we read in the third angel's message down there, it talked about the, the wine of God's fury poured out in the cup of his wrath. Well, what is that? Shouldn't we have an answer for that? Romans 1. Romans, a strange act, yes. Romans 1. God lets us go. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In the, in the Greek there is the active present tense. Is today in Paul's day being revealed. Not one day at the end of time will be revealed. So, yes, yeah, I guess that's what you call it. The active present perfect tense, whatever. Anyway, uh, is today in Paul's day being revealed. Wrath is being revealed. Because they suppress the truth by his wickedness. And if you, if you read down the next ten verses, you'll find that Paul tells you six times that God's character had been revealed, but men exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images of man, mortal, mortal man, birds, animals, to the truth about God. They didn't think it valuable to retain the truth about God. So the, it's very clear. You put that together, life eternal is knowing God, John 17, 3. 1 Corinthians 10, 3-5, the weapons we use are, are those d- uh, divine weapons that demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I mean, all through the Bible, you find this one theme. The truth about God himself has been rejected, has been lied, has been obscured. And when we reject that truth in Romans 1, in verse 24, 26, and 28, Paul tells us God does something. He lets us go. He gives us up. And it's called God's wrath. Okay, with that in mind then, we plug that back in to Revelation chapter 14. Because it talks about the wine of God's wrath. It also says in the second angel's message, there's some wine. And the second angel's message, what's the wine there? Maddening. The maddening wine of the harlot, okay? That, uh, that causes the benumbing of the, of the people who follow after the beast, right? And what is that wine? What is the wine of the harlot? It's in the second angel's message. You also find in Revelation chapter 17 that they got drunk on the maddening wine. What is that wine? The belief in, in the false god. Belief in a false god, deceptions. You're, you're exactly right. The wine are the false doctrines or false teachings about God that people believe 
that cause their minds to become derailed, unstable, uh, filled with all types of distorted processing. So, when we think about this type of wine, this wine that darkens the mind against God, and we think about this, this great harlot, in, the, in Bible imagery, who is, the, who is the, white, the woman with the pure white robes, the pure woman? True church. True church. Who would the harlot be? Okay, and what is it that makes someone be changed from pure to a to an adulterous being? Well, think about what adultery is. Damaging destruction. Say it louder. Unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness or changing your loyalties, right? And so the church is the the bride is. The bride of what bridegroom? Christ. Christ. That's who the bride is to be married to, right? And the bride is the church, the pure woman, married to Christ. The harlot then would be, have her heart attached to another than Christ. Wouldn't that would make the harlot then the harlot and not the pure woman anymore? Mm-hmm. Who does the church attach her heart to that constitutes becoming that great whore? Say, say, say. Through the surrogate of is it do you think that the Christian churches will actually become covens and in, 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 in satanic cults any false on this about Christ anybody who doesn't teach the truth but there's something specific it's happened once in history it's called the the uh, the beast and then there'll be an image to the beast what is it that happened in history? Where did the church turn her heart loyalty from? To, to what? Was it not that the church no longer sought Christ as her source of authority and power, but turned to the state for her source of authority and power? Isn't that, isn't that the, the marriage? That the church in dark ages turned towards state for its authority and power. And we're told that the church again will turn away from Christ as her source of authority and power to the state and marries herself to the state, seeking to get the state to legislate and enact the beliefs of the church. Will that not constitute the marriage, the adulterous relationship? Are we, are you, are we in agreement? Yeah. No? Some questions? Yeah. Ezekiel talks about the fact that there is an abomination of the harlotry of Israel by turning towards Tammuz. Yes. So I think any time you turn yourself away from Christ or God as a source of salvation, it becomes an adulterous relationship. And in the time of Ezekiel, it was turning towards Tammuz. I agree with that completely. Any 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 time the the organize, an individual can do that, and then as an organized body of believers, an organized body of believers can replace Christ if they so choose with some other deity. That could work as well. I think uh, that our particular end time scenario has us seeing a, a relationship being built between the church and political powers. Don't we kind of see that coming? Well, the abomination that causes desolation is talking particularly about the temple, isn't it? Desolating the temple. What's the temple? And what is it, and what is it that, that desolates this temple? Remember it says that, the man, uh, that, that um, the man of sin would want to set himself up on God's throne, declaring himself in the sanctuary, of, in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Uh, does that mean he went into heaven and threw God off his throne in heaven? 
Or was it the spirit temple that he was wanting to insert himself in and and thrown himself in the hearts and minds to be the one most loved and adored? And so the abomination that causes desolation is the abomination of lies about God, which actually desolates the spirit temple as we, our characters are or formed in the character of the satanic mold as we accept lies about God rather than being restored into the Christ-like character as we are unified with him. So it desolates the spirit temple as we accept those lies. Okay. So, anyway, back to our, our discussion here, what's going on in Revelation with the harlot and so forth, um, and back to the wine. So what is the wine that gets... Uh, what is the wine that gets the church and state intoxicated together? Would it not be that they have similar beliefs about God and his methods? That they believe God would be happy with uh, coercive tactics, coercive principles, that God would, would support? Uh, in fact, we have some, some examples of this going on in the world. There are people who believe in God in the Middle East who will take hold of government, in, like Afghanistan, and will uh, then force and kill people who don't agree with them. Uh, and they believe that God is happy. They, they have believed certain constructs of God such that when they do these things, they think they're doing it in God's name. That's no different than the Christian right now, you know, and with the right wing of the Republican Party, the same way. Well, I think that we see the dominoes being laid, don't we? When I say the dominoes being laid, you tip the dominoes and the whole thing starts to fall. There have been Christians here in America in the last 20 years who have blown up abortion clinics and shot abortion doctors. Uh, Call for the assassination of public figures. Call for the assassination of public figures. What methods are they practicing? What what picture of God have they accepted? Is it any different than the picture that the Taliban accepts? <laughs> exactly right. So this is the danger. Well, then let's talk then about the the wine because that's the wine, the wine of the harlot, which rep- misrepresents God, that changes people. But then there's that wine of God's wrath. How are they connected? Well, Jesus said in Luke chapter five, starting verse thirty-seven. It says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, the new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. Now, wine represents doctrines or beliefs that people hold. And if people have that mindset of God and see him in a certain light, like, say, the Taliban, how do you think the Taliban would feel about a God depicted in our picture? That, that, that they, if, they could, if you could tell them, we believe that that is God down on his knees washing the feet of George Bush. Would, they, would, that, would that warm their heart? No. Rage. Yes. See, this is new wine, right? This is new doctrine. This is new understanding. This is new truth. But they have an old wine, an old, a uh, distorted wine, a wine that... that that's, what does it say? Uh, maddening wine. Wine that makes them mad about how God is. And so, in the third angel's message, it says the wine of God's fury will be poured out unmixed in the cup of his wrath. Well, would not the new wine be the truth about God himself? The actual, real truth of who he is? And what will happen to those who believe God is this horrible being when... They, those who are settled into the lies about God, those who have rejected the truth about God, when they see Him face to face. Will God be angry at them? No. Or will their own ability, what did you say, when new wine gets poured into an old wineskin? It bursts. What's going to happen to their, their, their heads when they see Christ for who He really is? Is He going to do something to them? Or are they just going to like short circuit and, and I can't deal with it and be overwhelmed? Yeah. 
Didn't the same thing sort of happen when the people of Jesus' time thought He was going to set up an earthly kingdom? One minute they were, you know, praising Him and throwing their coats down in front of uh, His donkey. Then the next minute, they're crucifying Him. And He said, unless you eat My flesh and drink My blood, and as He tried to teach them this other truth, this other reality of God's character, they didn't want a God that would wash feet and forgive enemies. They wanted a God who would kill enemies. You're right. And so, yes, they could not handle it. Now, there's a metaphor in Malachi chapter 4 when it talks about the S-U-N. The S-U-N of righteousness is rising with healing in his wings. Wings is the traditional interpretation in most Bibles. But the Hebrew there, I understand, means the things that extend out from. That's what it actually means. The things that extend out from. And it's the S-U-N. So what is it that extends out from the S-U-N? Rays or beams. So the S-U-N of righteousness is rising with healing in his rays or beams. Now... Think about being in a cave with no light at all for, for two or three weeks, and then you're rescued and brought out in noon in summertime with the bright sun. What would that be like? You can't stand it. Would you want to run back in the cave? Okay. And then, let's say they take you out at four in the morning and let you sit there as the sun rises. How's that? That's easy. You can handle that, no sweat. You see, the S-U-N of righteousness is rising with healing in his race. The, the son of Truth and love is rising. The latter rain is being poured out. The Spirit, more and more truth is being poured onto the earth. And we, it's being poured out in amounts that we can handle because we're all in that dark cave of misunderstanding. And those of us who love the truth and begin assimilating it as it comes in these small amounts as the sun is rising here at the end of time, our minds and hearts are transformed and transformed and transformed until we become like Him, it says in First John, so that when He appears in the sky, we can see Him face to face. But those who have been rejecting the truth as it comes, they stay in the dark cave so that when, the, when Christ comes, it's like coming out of a cave into the brightness of, his, of the sun and they can't stand it and they're begging for the rocks and trees to hide them. So our opportunity is now begin assimilating the truth, having our hearts and minds changed to be like Christ. Yeah, Russell. I was just thinking of that same text when you were reading that passage a few minutes ago from Ellen White that Satan tries to intercept every ray of light uh, from you know, coming from heaven, you know, these are the same rays of light that are healing the righteous right now, and that will destroy the wicked in the end. The, it's the same light, no different. Exactly, that's exactly right. That's great. All right, let's go on to Sunday's lesson. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to forty-six. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to forty-six. We won't read the whole thing because it's kind of a long passage, but this is Jesus talking. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His, on his heavenly throne and He'll divide the righteous and the wicked into two camps, the sheep and the goats, the, the, the good on the right and the, and the wicked on the left. And He will invite those who are on His right, the sheep, to, to come and enter into the kingdom prepared for them by the Father. And He says, for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, you invited me in, and so forth and so on. And He said, when did we do this? And when you did it, one of, the, one of the least of these. Then He says to the wicked on His left, He said, you know, get, get thee hence, because when I I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And he said, well, when did we not do this? When you didn't do it to the least of these. What is the main point? Yes. The thing that has struck me about that is they were so transformed, they did not realize that they were loving. They were automatically feeding the poor, nurturing others, and doing good. And, and, and they weren't even thinking of it in that terms because God had sent, so transformed their lives. I love that. And, and, and I've said, remember the me- metaphor of the circle of love when I talk about breathing? You give away carbon dioxide and, you, and the plants give it back oxygen, that circle of love. When God heals us to, to love, it will be as easy to love others as it is to breathe. 
What was the last time you actually thought, man, I've been breathing today? <laughs> I mean, you just don't think about it, do you? You just do it. You see? And I think that's your point. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great point. So, what is the main focus, though, the, as Jesus is looking here, the main demarcating feature that, between the saved and the lost? How they treat others. And so the main demarcating feature in their character. Love or, or selfishness. That's it. It comes down to, would you have a character that loves others more than self? Or do you have a character that loves self more than others? Isn't that the main demarcating feature that Christ is emphasizing here? Have you been restored back into the harmony with God's eternal law that governs the universe, which is the law of love? Or do you continue to practice Satan's law, which is the survival of the fittest law? Read the second paragraph there. Uh, it starts, Thus Christ on. Thus Christ on the Mount of Olives pictured to his disciples the scene of the great judgment day. And he represented its decision as turning upon one point. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes, and their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person of the poor and the suffering. In that day, Christ does not present before men the great work he has done for them in giving his life for their redemption. He presents the faithful work they have done for him. Wow. And that's out of Desire of Ages 6.37. Does that sound a little like a works situation thing going on there? Does anybody get a little nervous when they read that? Well, I see some heads nodding. Let's clarify the meaning of all that. Uh, this is another place where the legal metaphor of salvation breaks down. The legal metaphor paid the price and so forth and so on. Because when we look at it through those legal lenses, we're saying, oh man, this is a lot of work. Woo, it's a lot of pressure here. Um, but the way the brother said it was uh-huh. succinct. The, the medical metaphor, the healing metaphor, which is really the, the plan of salvation anyway, <laughs> which comes from that healing metaphor, makes sense of it all. Imagine somebody dying with metastatic cancer all over their body. And when we look to the people who are healthy, healthy, and a person with metastatic cancer all over their body, they're weak, they're emaciated, they're nauseated, they, 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 have, they don't have energy, okay? And we look at the, the person who's healthy, and the person who is healthy is eating three full meals a day, and, and exercising, and going out bike riding, and swimming, and all these different things. Would we say to the cancer patient, look, if you, if you start eating three meals a day and exercising, you're, you're going to be well, does it matter how many meals they eat or how hard they physically exercise? If they have cancer all over their body, is that going to fix them? Will their hard work fix the problem? Nope. However, if somebody comes with a remedy and gives them a remedy that puts the cancer into remission, once they're well, will they start eating again and being more physically active? Will you see that transformation of their functioning, where their function change as they're healed in the inner man? You see, as they're healed. And so, uh, this whole thing that she's describing here is not a works that we earn. It's a demonstration. When our hearts have truly been transformed, does our functioning change? Absolutely. The natural reaction. Yes. So this isn't something we have to work to accomplish, but this is something that will be experienced by all those who have had Christ come in and sup with Him and He with us. Yes, this transformation process. Functioning changes. You wouldn't even want it to happen if it wasn't if it wasn't going to change the function. There would be no point of remission. You wouldn't want to be cured of cancer if you weren't going to be able to eat and exercise and ride your bike with the point. Exactly. And so a man's original design. How was man in the Garden of Eden originally designed to function? Upon what principles? Love. Love. So that's the way we were originally designed to function. So 
when Christ comes in and heals us, how will we function? It's loving, you see? That's exactly right. All right, Monday's lesson, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Thoughts about that text? I'm sure we've all heard that. We've all heard that text, haven't we? What do you think it means? That everybody has to be dunked, and they have to have the right words said by the preacher during the dunk, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or else they can't go to heaven. They can't be saved. Is that what it means? What does discipleship mean? Define discipleship. Is it what we do or say, or is it a transformation of the life as we become disciples we become transformed thoughts about her question because it's tying to this question yes what does it mean to be a disciple a follower one who disciplines himself in the manner of the teacher well that's the traditional view of a disciple you parrot what your teacher says and does. Parrots, and we're going to get more of this into our next lesson, Jesus uh, invited us into understanding friendship. So if we're a disciple of Christ, we become a friend of God. An intelligent, understanding friend who is in agreement with God. Would that be a disciple of Christ? So back to this question then. It says... um, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Hmm. Immersing means to, I mean, baptize means to immerse, and name refers to, the Bible's understanding character, so we're supposed to totally fill them, teach them, immerse them. Beautiful. Did everybody hear her? Baptize means to immerse. And the name is character, exactly right. And we are to immerse the world in the truth about the character of God. That's what it means. We were to go forward representing the truth. What was the what did the controversy start over in heaven? About God. What's he like? Character of God. Yes, it's the character of God. And he's telling us, go forward to all nations and immerse the world in my character, the character of the Father, the character of the Son, the character of the Holy Spirit, in our methods, our principles, and teach them to obey all things. And what is it that we obey? The law of love. Yes. Do you think the disciples understood that? Um, did they understand earlier when Jesus said the Son of Man must go into Jerusalem, be killed, uh, die, and raise in three days? Did they understand it when he said that? No. 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 <laughs> it, said, it said that they were actually afraid to even ask him about it. So, no, I don't think the disciples understood a lot of what Jesus said to them. That doesn't mean it, it, it isn't, isn't what he meant. But when the Holy Spirit came later... He enlightened their minds, and, and they did begin to understand. And when they went out, was their primary mission to actually have people go through a ritual. It was their primary mission, as it says in um, the Good News Version of the Bible, for, I think it's Second Corinthians chapter 5, in the Good News Version, starting around verse 12. I think that's where it's at. It's we are to go out and teach the truth that will make all men 
God's friends. Isn't that right? That he has, he has invited us into friendship? I think it's Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. Anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is done by God, who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making all human beings his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins, and he has given us the message which tells how he makes his how he makes them his friends. Here we are then, speaking for Christ, as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Let God change you from enemies into his friends. That's good. That's good. So let God change you from his enemies into his friends. And did you notice in there, he did not keep an account of our sins. sins. Did you notice that? I did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You see? This whole legal idea, this whole legal metaphor. By the way, you can check that on 1 Corinthians 13 too, where love keeps no record of wrongs. This whole idea of God up there with his angels tracking everything you do and this recording angel putting all the bad stuff down and if you don't get the blood applied to erase all that bad stuff out of your book, then all this. It's all a distortion. It's not true. He says, I'll remember your sins. Pardon? Book of Deeds, then, is writing down the good things that we've done in the name of Christ? No, 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 no. No, there, there are records. There are records. And if you look, there are records. But they're not records of keeping track of the sins of people. God has no need to do that. Why does he have no need to keep track of our sins? No. 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 Well, <laughs> he forgave them. Well, first off, he forgave them. He does know everything. But that's not the reason why. See, when, with the whole idea that you have to keep track of sins is predicated under the whole... Uh, that, you ha- that, that the problem with sin is a legal problem that requires external penalty. And you have to keep track so God can be just because you wouldn't want anybody to suffer one millisecond longer in the flames than their, ju- their sins deserved. So we've got to have a, cri- a very accurate, uh, accurate listing of all the sins to make sure everybody gets just what they deserved, you see? Because the punishment for sin is imposed. This is, this is a distortion. Sin destroys the sinner. Sin reacts upon the sinner, transforming his heart and mind, searing the conscience, as Paul says. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Uh, Ellen White says in First Elect Messages 235, says, We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner and makes it more easy for him to sin again. Okay? It transforms us, takes us out of harmony with God. And the sure result is ruin and death, is what she says. So what is the book of deeds then? Well, the, 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 let, me, let me just finish here first. You see, this whole idea that sin is an external penalty results in us creating these ideas that the record books are for God to judge us by. But when you look at the, uh, the, the testimony of the scriptures that love keeps no record of wrongs, he did not keep account of their sins, it tells us that hey, there's a different picture of understanding what this is all about. He doesn't have to keep a record because all those who are out of harmony with him, as we just talked about, all those who hold sin and evil in their heart, what will happen to them when they come face to face with him? It says there, it says in Thessalonians, they are destroyed by the brightness of their of his coming. Why? It's his reason. For they did not love the truth and thus be healed. It says right in the, right in the passage, they did not love the truth. They held to the lies. And so they weren't healed. So God does not have to keep account in order to inflict the penalty. The, the penalty is inherent in being out of harmony with God. But then what is the reason for the record books? Evidence. Evidence, exactly right, in whose account? 
Uh, for the intervention that he tried to... That's exactly right. When a doctor treats patients and they have a group of patients and some of them are willing to comply and take the treatment and some of them are non-compliant and refuse the treatment and the ones who are non-compliant and refuse the treatment die and their family member then brings a lawsuit against the doctor. You saved and healed these. Why didn't you heal my, my loved one? Well, what will come into evidence at that point? The records. In order to condemn the, the ones who died or in order to defend the doctor who tried all he could to heal them. So the records are there to stand for all eternity to expose the fact that God did everything for every individual being in this universe to save and heal. And the only reason the lost were lost is because they've rejected everything God did for them. Now, Sawhan, yes? You talk about that in your book, the story of the the father who had the sick child and took him to the emergency room. Or I think it was in your book, took him to the emergency room. The child died. He tried to do what he could. But nobody in healthcare recognized what the problem with the child was. But he carried this great guilt, and it was destroying him. We can see, I mean, just looking around, the destructive power of guilt, and that's just a very superficial guilt compared to what people will realize when they see God. Exactly it right. It will be something so powerful. I mean, we've all experienced guilt in our own lives. It's destructive <coughs> and life-changing. It can be how it you know, changes everything about our quality of existence. But that's just a very small amount of guilt compared to what will happen when Jesus will come. So we can imagine how what's in our own mind could destroy us, literally destroy us. And so Christ, again, back to this question of immersing baptizing, immersing the hearts and minds in the truth about God. Um, and I've, I've read this before, but it's just too good not to read again. Christ Object Lessons, page 415. It is the darkness and misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of His character. It has been misunderstood and misrepresented. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of His glory, the light of His goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of His character of love. Amen. That is the mission of the church, to take this truth about God, to immerse hearts and minds into the truth about God's character, thus dispelling the lies of Satan, winning people back to Christ, opening the heart, experiencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the recreation of Christ-like character within. All right, Tuesday's lesson, the first paragraph, it starts out, let's look. Let's look at something else in Mark's account of the Great Commission. In Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, quote, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Thus we see that the foundation of the commission, foundation of the commission, is the call to preach the gospel. How do you like that? If you believe, you're saved. If you don't believe, you'll be damned. How do we understand that? What's the meaning? To read the Bible, we have to ask the, several questions. One: What does the Bible actually say? Does it say what somebody said it says? Now, yep, it says that. We, we we've checked it out. The Bible says these words. Then we have to go, what does it mean? And then we have to go, and how does that work and apply to my life today? I think this, um, these couple of verses often lead us to that blind faith we've talked about before. Believe, believe, believe. If you don't believe, then you know, it's over for you. Okay. And that's why we have to ask, you know, what does it really, really say? Exactly. So well, two halves of this question. One, the belief half. 
What does it mean to really believe? And then what does it mean to be damned? Well, if you don't believe, you don't trust the one that can heal you. If you don't trust the one that can heal you, you don't accept the remedy. So belief is trust. Yes. Okay? Trusting the one uh, who can heal. And we don't trust our doctor. We don't take the remedy. And so, oh, I like that. And so we can put then John chapter 3, 14 to 19, where, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. How often do we forget that? He did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, and their deeds were evil. Men stand condemned already. Does that mean that if they don't believe, God will condemn them? Or are they already in a state of condemnation? Well, how can we put that... And that sounds so much, again, like the legal metaphor, legal language. How do we put that in a medical model? We're dying. We're terminal. We are in a terminal state. Christ has come not to condemn us for our terminal state, or to kill us, but to heal us. Save. You shall call his name Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. That word save, sozo, means to heal. Salvation comes from that root word salvo, which means to either salvage or to, like I salve, medicinal, to heal. He came to heal us, to save us, to regenerate us, to restore us, to fix the condition. And so we are in a terminal state. Those who trust him open the heart and receive what he has provided via the working of the Holy Spirit and thus experience healing, transformation, regeneration, a new heart and right spirit, thus receive eternal life. Those who don't trust him, God doesn't have to do anything to them. Why? They're already terminal. They already stand in a terminal, dead, dying state. Does that make sense to everyone? Yes. Okay. Is that the way it's often taught? No. Does it, go, does it make a difference in how we see God when we understand these things in these ways? Does it do violence to the scripture if we suggest that we are already in a terminal state and if God doesn't act, if God restrains himself and does nothing, we die? Versus God has to use his power to kill us because we're in rebellion. Does it make a difference in how we see God? Yeah. And you know, much of Christianity has bought into the wine of the harlot, which sees God having to inflict death upon the wicked. God's the executioner, he's the killer. Wednesday's lesson, the middle paragraph, talks about we see an important. Anyone read that? We see an important principle here. Sure, experiences, physical manifestations, and miracles all have their role and can have a major part in giving people what they need in order to have faith in Jesus. At the same time, however, Scripture must be the foundation of all of our faith. Despite the miracles, Jesus affirmed their faith using the Scriptures to do it. He used the Scriptures to confirm all that had happened to him and buttress all that he had to say to them. If Jesus himself used the scriptures to justify all that he did, how much more should we? No question. We need to build our beliefs on the foundation of the scriptures. No question about it. And in the second temptation of Christ, what did Lucifer use to tempt Christ? The scripture. Whoa. How could he possibly do that? Misquoted. 
Yes. Do you see the fact that, that a, 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 somebody coming to you with a scripture quote alone is not sufficient, is it? No, we have to understand the meaning. We have to reason and think for ourselves. We have to be able to weigh. So what is it that protects us from somebody twisting the scripture on us? Knowing the scriptures. Knowing the scriptures broadly. Knowing the scriptures deeply. Knowing the scriptures as, as a whole. Education page 70. The Bible is his own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole. To see the relation of its parts, he should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme of God's original purpose for the world, the rise of the great controversy and the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their work through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. He should see how this controversy enters every phase of human experience and how in every act of life he reveals one of the two of the antagonistic motives and whether he will or not on which side of the great controversy will be found. You see, when we read the scriptures, we have to be able to compare all the parts. Our understanding of the great controversy, God, his methods, his principles, the issues of sin, Satan, this whole war has to include all 66. We get in trouble when we start leaving Bible verses out. So Luther's theology, as great as Luther was, a man of God, man for his time, a man called to start the Reformation. Do you understand Reformation theology, which is what the legalistic, substitutionary, penal view stems from? Reformation theology. Luther left four books out of the Bible. He left Hebrews out. He left James out. He left Revelation out. He left Jude out. Four books of the Bible were left out. We get in trouble when we start building theologies on incomplete Scripture, don't we? Modern Christianity today has a split dispensation. We have the old dispensation of law, and we have the new dispensation of grace. And much of modern Christianity's theology is built on New Testament theology, or New Testament scriptures, with diminishing the value of Old Testament scripture. But when you read the New Testament scripture, and Paul talks about all scripture inspired by God is valuable for doctrine and instruction, which scripture was he talking about? The Old Testament. When Christ was teaching, which scripture was he quoting? Old Testament. Testament. Is there any difference in how people were saved in the Old Testament versus the New? No. Were they saved by grace in the Old? Yes. Yes, It was always by by God's grace through trust in God. This plan of salvation has always been the same. And we get into trouble when we begin parsing the Scripture into little sections and splitting it up and taking a little here, taking a little there to build our doctrines. We need to be able to incorporate all the various texts into a grand central theme and understanding such that we can go forward and be able to communicate with other people the truth about God and His character and methods. Does that make sense? Yes. All right, let's close uh, this session with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us this opportunity to come together and, and study Your Word this week. We pray that as we go forward, you will enlighten our minds with your spirit, that you will help us learn how to put all the pieces of scripture together to see the truth about your character, your methods, your government, what happened in in heaven, how you were misrepresented, how the lies have infected our minds here on earth, and that we can experience the truth, not just cognitively, not just intellectually, but that we can open the heart and experience the indwelling truth of your spirit, regenerating, recreating us to be like you, that we can be powerful lights to shed this truth about you, lighting the world for your coming, that we can see you soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.